1: Even hardened genre fans will find themselves whimpering at each new revelation. Publishers Weekly. The Infected Trilogy is an unabridged three-season audio fiction series from number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler. Infected is a marvel of gonzo in-your-face up-to-the-minute terror. Lincoln Child, New York Times bestselling author of Relic and the Pendergrass series. 88 episodes, 53 hours of horror are free and available now wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: Realm Presents Born to the Blade Episode 5 Prologue Whirls of mist eddied below the airstone plated hulls of the cargo ships in Amber, Rumiko's main harbor. It was not a good sign. Old superstition claimed that uneasy mists below the harbor were linked to storms farther out, and some believed the turbulence presaged mist fiend attacks. But the cargo on these vessels could not wait. On shore, yellow robed priests traced fire spurter signals for good fortune, the sparks shooting high into the sky and lucky helices. In case prayer wasn't enough, each ship boasted two master navigators and an additional complement of four blade crafters for protection. Trade Minister Pierre stepped off the gangplank after a final inspection of the cargo and gave the launch signal with a flourish. Mooring ropes were loosed and coiled. On seven decks, seven navigators carved the sigil to rise, and the convoy elevated with majestic precision. Hundreds of leagues away, in the large, still-undecorated suite that had been designated the Rumikan Embassy in Toifei, Chris looked out from their first official use of the reflecting pool that would serve as their primary communication with their home island. What do you think? they asked Ojo, unable to keep the pleased smile from their face. Does the shipment look like what you need? Ojo did not match Chris's smile, but offered a warm handclasp instead. My friend, the shipment is perfect. The quality looks very impressive. Ojo shifted his stance, hoping to encourage Chris toward the exit. He needed to call his own country to confirm the embarkation. Most warders would understand the need for privacy without it being said, but Chris apparently had not caught on. It felt churlish to ask Chris to leave after sharing the Rumikin's own communique. Hopefully this will be the beginning of a fruitful relationship between our islands. Chris had planned a brief speech practicing with Alex in their chambers to smooth the unaccustomed diplomatic language, but in the moment they were inspired to expand on it. We will forge bonds as light and strong as the air stone we trade, and our joined strength will allow us to construct uh, a cooperation like fleets of ships lacing the sky together. They paused for breath, and Ojo jumped in. Well said, well said. Uh, Now, if you will excuse me for a moment, I need to speak briefly with the bright chamber. Oh, uh, of course. Chris took a step toward the door, wondering what Ojo might need to say about the deal that they could not be a party to. Chris. Ojo strode after them to the door of the chamber and clasped Chris's hand again. Thank you, truly. You have done us a great service. Chris was surprised to see the tears standing in Ojo's eyes. Hardly a service, they said, attempting to lighten the mood. You're paying us well for it. Taking the cue, Ojo finally smiled. So you'll be standing for the tea tonight, then? Chris smiled back, relief lighting their face. At least the first round. I'll see you there. Chapter One, Michiko The early morning couriers from the Murtikan embassy were getting very annoying. Michiko was still sore from the duel, and not just physically. She had been replaying the critical moment over and over in her mind for most of the night, and she still wasn't sure whether she had done the right thing. She had only just dropped off to sleep when the messenger rang. Last month, even last week, Michiko would have been caught in a rush of adrenaline by the note, breath racing as she tried to sculpt a flawless appearance without delaying her requested attendance at the embassy. After that night, she didn't even have the energy to be anxious about it. Michiko pulled her hair into something resembling the low formal knot that compromised between Kakutan tradition and shorter Murtikan styles, smoothed the trailing sleeves on her third best robe, and made her way to the Murtikan embassy. Lavinia was waiting for her in the private reception room. During her hurried bow, her nerves had caught up with her as she entered the room. Michiko could see Bologna standing in the background, just in front of the Airstone-inlaid carved screen, with an expression somewhere between scandalized and smug. Well? Lavinia asked before Michiko had even straightened up. What were you thinking? Michiko froze, wondering if Lavinia knew she could have fought better at the gauntlet duel. I... She had to try again to get a sentence out. I'm sorry. Chris is very skillful, and I suddenly felt ill. She does look tired, Bologna put in, and Michiko's eyes darted to her, wondering if Bologna was actually on her side. Lavinia pounced, ignoring Bologna so thoroughly she almost talked over her. Then maybe you should have adhered to the initial schedule, instead of offering unnecessary assistance to your enemy. They hardly extended you the same courtesy. Michiko should have said something about how Chris had no way to know she wasn't feeling well, but she was still startled by hearing Lavinia refer to the Rumikan as her enemy. I'm sure she did her best, Bologna commented. Maybe she really was trying to help. The Kakutan style does have its weaknesses, and you know she hasn't had the benefit of our training program. Michiko swallowed and looked away. If that was Bologna's idea of helping, she wasn't sure she wanted it. She is here as warder, Lavinia snapped without looking away from Michiko. She must be able to hold her own. Otherwise, what use is she? Michiko's eyes focused on the screen behind Bologna. It was a beautiful piece of craftsmanship, the wood carved in sinuous designs, the airstone inlay precisely balanced so that it floated continuously at ankle height above the floor. The first time she had been in this room, she'd noted it as an example of the opulence and art of Mertikan culture. Now she wondered where the airstone had come from. Was it from Kakute, perhaps? From Ikaro? Couldn't it be put to some better use than decoration for an embassy chamber that few non mertikans ever saw the inside of? I suppose illness, however foolishly contracted, is still better than deliberate defiance, Lavinia sneered, stepping closer. That, as I'm sure you understand, would require your immediate replacement here, and possibly prosecution. Anger made Michiko want to shout that of course she'd done it on purpose, but she lowered her eyes with a murmured, indeed. Was she being weak or practicing proper etiquette? She no longer knew. If your health is so delicate, Maybe you should stop visiting that filthy tea house so much and confine yourself to a more hygienic diet. In the meantime, I want you on a strict training regimen, Lavinia ordered. Two hours of practice each day with Bologna, or, when I have time, with me. Yanked from her thoughts, Michiko blanched at the idea of facing Lavinia even in practice. That tremor, as much as anything else, seemed to satisfy Lavinia, at least for the moment. I certainly hope the next time you won't fail us. Would she? Michiko wasn't sure she would have the courage to try something like that again, especially knowing that Lavinia could force her to spar whenever she liked. Michiko stumbled out of the embassy, barely seeing what was in front of her as her mind played and replayed Lavinia's brutal attacks on Chris during their duel. Chapter 2. Chris As wonderful as winning the gauntlet had felt, this was even better. Chris had helped their friends, they had helped their island, and all within days of becoming a warder. Buying round after round of delicious tea for Ojo and Adechike, and of course themselves, felt like the perfect way to celebrate, but also something more. Laughing at one of Adechike's jokes next to Ojo, Chris started to feel that maybe Bladecraft wasn't the most important part of being a warder, and maybe, just maybe, they could be good at these other parts, too. Not only that, it might be fun. It was not until they had finished their noodle bowls and were halfway through the third round that Chris noticed Ojo wasn't enjoying himself as much as they were. He answered when spoken to directly and looked content when sitting back and watching Chris and Odechike chatter, but his mind seemed to be elsewhere. Soon after, he drained his cup and said goodnight. But it's still early, Chris protested. Perhaps for you young people. Ojo smiled and clapped them on the shoulder. Thank you again, Chris. It's a great thing we've managed today. Someday you will understand how great. For now, just accept my thanks. Bemused, Chris watched Ojo walk out, nodding to Shun as he went. He seems so serious these days. It's not you. K was also watching his mentor leave. Penelope leaves tomorrow. Chris gasped. Really? And he spent all that time here on his last night with her? He should have said something. It's fine, Adechike said. You wanted to be here, at least for a bit. Chris started to giggle. What? Adechike asked. I was wondering how he could feel sleepy after all that tea. Adechike tried to hold it in, then lost the fight and burst out laughing. Sleeping, he managed to say, is probably not the priority. To Ojo and Penelope, Chris said. Wait, we need to toast him with something stronger than tea. We do. Adetuchek agreed, signaling the server for alcohol. The plum wine only increased their enthusiasm. To the productive, fruitful, mutually beneficial friendship between our countries, to flight, Chris offered. To trade, Adetuchek responded. To Kulo, to Rumika, to Twafe, and Warders, except Lavinia. I'm so happy this has worked out, Chris said after Adetuchek had recovered from spitting plum wine out his nose. It's gonna be great. And we can build on this deal, you know. Talk about another installment if you need more. It must be an enormous mine. A marveled. You should be careful though. You don't want to extract too much and end up sinking like us. Oh, Chris hesitated, realizing they were on the point of blurting out something that was supposed to be a secret. Well, I guess you'll find out soon enough anyway. It's it's not from a mine. I mean it is from a mine, but not all of it. No. Wait, that's not what I mean either. Adechike was giggling again. I think you need more wine, he said, motioning at the waiter. No, 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 Chris said, then had to beckon the waiter back. Yes, oh, wine? Yes, the airstone. They leaned over the table to get closer to Adechike. The reason we have so much and that it's so pure is not because of the mine, but because of the process. The process? Adechike repeated. So there's this amazing group of scientists at Kalanika University. They invited me to visit after I was chosen to come stand the gauntlet. Chris paused to take a gulp of wine. I still can't believe I am won. I'm a warder. To the gauntlet. To the gauntlet! As I was saying, they have figured out a way to refine airstone and get greater potency from less of the raw material. Ali Tremine, one of the lead scientists on the team, told me they may be able to get up to a 75% increase if they keep improving the process. That's... Atecheke was stunned, almost into sobriety. That's... world-changing. He blinked. And they're already doing this? How do you think we're able to sell you so much airstone? We built a refinery at Orsa. It's still small, but if we're able to expand as we plan... Unable to express in words the amazingness of this, Chris threw their arms wide. Atecheke still couldn't get over it. That's just amazing. It's... I almost can't believe it. Oh, yeah. Adetchike's tone suggested honest pleasure, not actual disbelief. But it reminded Chris that they were talking loudly about something they shouldn't have mentioned at all. We should probably not tell too many people about this, uh, for the moment, I mean. uh, Of course, Adetchike agreed. And congratulations. I bet if you had told people about that before the gauntlet, they all would have avoided you and... Or invaded us, Chris muttered, but quickly cheered up again. Anyway, I didn't need the help... To blades! To blades! Chapter 3 Michiko. Tears stung Michiko's eyes as she walked the streets of the upper island of Tuafay. She couldn't stay in the Kakuta Embassy any longer, avoiding Kensuke and wondering if all of the embassy staff saw her as a traitor. She knew she should probably go down to one of the lower islands where she would be more anonymous, but the thought of crowding into one of the lifts was not appealing. And she saw the turret of the Ikaten embassy. She remembered Takeshi's fight with Chris. He had almost looked stressed, which was an odd way to lose a match for an Ikaten. Maybe Michiko wasn't the only one struggling with her role in the Empire. impulse, she turned at the entrance to the Ikaten embassy and rang the bell. Takeshi opened the door himself and looked even more surprised to see Michiko than she was to see him. Oh, uh, Michiko started. Sorry to bother you, I just... Please, Takeshi finally managed. You're not bothering me at all. Please, come in. That wasn't entirely true, Michiko saw when they got to Takeshi's rooms. She had clearly interrupted him. A distiller was smoking on a hot plate of some kind, and next to it an elongated spoon had been laid beside a beaker with fluids of several different colors layered within it. I didn't realize you were a chemist, Michiko said. Oh, uh, not really. I I dabble. Takeshi sounded embarrassed, but Michiko figured it was just bashfulness. If he really didn't want her to know, he wouldn't have brought her in here. Would you like tea? Ah, Michiko eyed the hot plate. From the kitchen, Takeshi laughed and pulled a bell cord. Please, sit down. Michiko gingerly moved a stack of tomes, discovering an upholstered chair underneath. Thank you, she said. Takeshi looked at her expectantly. Michiko was not sure how to bring up treason. How are things in Nikaro? She hazarded. Takeshi blinked, shrugged. "Uh, The usual, I suppose. Uh, People were a little unnerved by the ordeals surrounding the Golden Lord. That was it. The perfect opening. But just then there was a knock on the door, and a woman with a servant sash poked her head in. Takeshi said something to her in a language Michiko didn't understand, and she nodded and then disappeared. What language was that? Michiko asked. What? It, oh, uh, well, we can't afford to bring Ikatan servants, so I hire people from Toafe. And they speak a different language? Some. Takeshi seemed amused by her interest. There's a neighborhood here of people descended from refugees of Zenitai, and they try to keep the language and customs alive. Jyoti speaks Guy, of course, and quite good Murtikan, too, but I like practicing. Whole neighborhood from Zenithai? Descended from, yes. It's fascinating. He coughed slightly. I help out at their clinic, so I've gotten to know a few people. I'll take you sometime if you'd like to meet them. That would be very interesting. Michiko wasn't sure how to respond to these unexpected depths from Takeshi. It had never occurred to her to do anything here besides being a warder, and occasionally relax from being a warder. With Lavinia around, that really seemed like enough. There was an awkward pause. Michiko caught Takeshi's eyes, straying back to his equipment, but she couldn't leave now. At a minimum, she had to drink the tea. She tried to think of a way to bring up her concerns, but the mention of Zenitai had spooked her. It was the familiar horror story told to all children of the island nations. We must avoid war or we could all be destroyed. It was, now that she thought about it, A useful tale for maintaining an empire. What are you working on? She asked finally. Oh, this? Takeshi glanced at his equipment as though he had forgotten it. He couldn't wait for me to ask, Michiko realized. I'm doing some research on birthrights. Birthrights? It had never occurred to Michiko that birthrights could be a topic for scientific inquiry. Birthrights just were. Apparently, she was not alone in that. Yes, birthrights. Nobody has really studied them in any systematic way. Did you know that we still have no idea why they are tied to birthplace? Or even how they happen at all? There must be some interaction with the environment of different islands, but there is still a complete dearth of research. Takeshi was so involved, he didn't seem to notice when the servant returned with the tea. She aligned the cup in front of Michiko with a formality that she thought was a little excessive, but then she remembered that the woman, or her ancestors at least, were from Zenitai. Maybe that was how they used to do it there. What we really need is more data, Takeshi went on. I've been studying blood samples from as many different birthrights as I have been able to get. I still don't have a Kakute representative, though. He paused, hopefully, but Michika was still distracted by thoughts of Zenitai, Empire, and war, and didn't notice. Takeshi coughed slightly. Maybe it's a completely harmless procedure, almost painless, very quick. If I could just take a little of your blood, it would be very helpful to have a sample from Kakute. Oh, Michiko's first impulse was to help him. Does that, too, come from Ritika's influence, she wondered. But what would her blood tell him about her birthright? What if he could somehow connect to her ancestors? What if he learned that the Golden Lord was her grandfather? Sorry, Michiko said, getting up so quickly, the pale remains of her tea sloshed in the cup. I have to go. Maybe some other time? Good luck. And before Takeshi could stop her, she was gone.
0: As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. shopify.com slash realm
1: hi i'm madigan from your angry neighborhood feminist a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective check out new episodes mondays and fridays for a wide variety of topics and news episodes listen wherever you get your podcasts rage on
2: Chapter 4. Penelope. Penelope awoke at dawn, as her mother had trained her to do when she was a child. She smiled involuntarily. Soon she would have a child to teach the ways of life to, just as her mother had taught her. If it was a girl, please, please let it be a girl. Usually she rolled out of bed immediately, but today she gave herself an extra 30 seconds to listen to Ojo breathing softly through his mouth. He was so soft in many ways, and yet he had an amazingly firm system of principles for a man. Firm in other ways, too. The conception process had been very enjoyable. Penelope twisted her legs off the bed and bounced to her feet. As always, Ojo opened his eyes when she did so. Today, however, he didn't smile or roll immediately out of bed to join her. Good morning. Penelope tried to let her voice tell him so she wouldn't have to put it into words. I don't want to talk about how much you're going to miss me. She would miss him too, of course, but there was no use talking about it. They had both known this day was coming. Besides, it was the way of things. Many of Penelope's friends, those lucky enough to find a sire they were fond of, at any rate, had gone through something similar. Still, she leaned over to give Ojo a quick kiss on the lips. Morning, Ojo said. He couldn't even say it was good for politeness's sake. Penelope could see him searching for some other comment to make. She saw his eyes flick to her trunks, already packed and corded in the corner of the room. How did it go with the room yesterday? She asked to forestall him. Ojo hated it when she referred to people by a characteristic rather than by their name, but it wasn't rude on Vanya, And besides, Chris was hardly at a level to merit great respect yet. The gauntlet performance had been decent, with a lucky chance during her own match, but that wasn't all there was to being a warder. Ojo grimaced and sat up while Penelope moved into the alcove to splash water onto her face from a basin. It went well, he said once she could hear him again. We have our trade deal. Penelope leaned out to look at him, an eyebrow raised. He was being very free with that information. The ships have sailed, Ojo added. It is already in process. Still, bad luck to talk about it before it was complete, but maybe Kuloi had a different set of superstitions. Congratulations, Penelope said. Will it be enough? Perhaps. Ojo turned away from her to pull his shirt over his head, and Penelope watched the muscles in his back. He really was a dear, even if he insisted on moping about the fact that she wasn't giving up her wife, culture, and child's birthright to stay with him. Penelope sighed. Men. But Ojo was one of the better ones, and she hoped their friendship would survive. She hoped he would survive. Take care, she advised him. and may take this deal as an aggression. Ojo emerged from his shirt, scowling. Only because they think the maelstrom revolves around them. Considering a trade deal between two unrelated nations as an act of aggression against them. They are frightened of you, Penelope said as gently as she could. They remember what you did to Zenatai. Ojo's face grew even more severe. That was centuries ago. Of course, but fear lingers, especially among those desperate for ascendancy. They know your bladecraft is strong, and they believe you still have resources to vie with theirs. You are a threat to them. Ojo sagged back onto the bed. Not really. Don't let them know that, Penelope advised. If they see your weakness, they may hurry a confrontation. She knelt beside him to get her face at his level. She wanted to be sure he listened to this. I trust you and would fight by your side. You know that. From the expression on his face, he hadn't known it, and she hurried on before they could get caught up in all the painful sentiment she wanted to avoid. But I am not the only leader in Vania. We are not yet decided where we will fight if this becomes a war. Surely you wouldn't take Murtica's side. They're a danger to you as well. Your colleagues must see that. I wouldn't. Penelope made a face. I've met Lavinia. But from Vania's perspective, Murtika has done nothing to threaten us. Yet. Yet, Penelope agreed. But we will not shrink from battle. I do not know where we will fight, but I can assure you that we will. Chapter 5. Chris Anyone home? Chris pounded again on the door of the Ikarin embassy. The evening was cool, and they bounced on their toes while they waited. They had to keep in shape, after all. They were a warder now, and a challenge to a duel could come at any time. Chris was in the middle of an extended thrust with an imaginary blade when Takeshi opened the door. Good evening, Chris said, straightening but unable to wipe the goofy smile off their face. They loved being a warder. How is your miss day? They remembered they were supposed to be apologizing. Or, uh, I mean, how are you feeling? Did the wound heal well? Uh, fine. Takeshi rubbed a hand over the back of his neck, then glanced toward the interior of the embassy. Sorry, I was busy, and I wasn't sure what that knocking was. Not many visitors? Chris asked sympathetically. There's a bell, Takeshi pointed out. He sounded amused rather than annoyed, and Chris laughed. Good thing there wasn't an observational skills component to the gauntlet. Takeshi smiled in return, if a little uncertainly. Look, Chris said, I still feel terrible about the duel. Takeshi raised his hands as if to demur awkwardly, but Chris pushed on. I came to see if you wanted to join me for a drink at the autumn leaf. Takeshi looked back inside again. Chris smiled their winningness smile. I know there's a lot I can learn from you, and more, a lot that our nations can learn from each other. Besides, you help me heal. Let me repay you. After a moment, Takeshi gave in. I guess I could use a break. Chris was careful to get them one of the more secluded tables in the autumn leaf. They had an uncomfortable feeling that the night before, with Ojo and Adechike, they might have been less than discreet. Chris sensed that Takeshi wouldn't want to be thanked or apologized to overmuch, so during the first two rounds, they kept up a steady patter of insignificant gossip, general pleasure at becoming a warder, and banal, touristy comments about Toifei. It was only when Takeshi was on his third and whiskey that Chris started in. Listen, I need to apologize again. There was so much confusion and, well, pomp after the gauntlet that I lost track of things, but I don't want you to think that I did it on purpose. Hmm? Either Takeshi was drunker than he appeared, or he was lost in his own thoughts. Oh, please don't mention it. Of course, I wouldn't think you had done it on purpose. Why would you... He trailed off, obviously remembering how viciously Lavinia had hurt Chris. Well, Chris said, uncomfortable now himself, I don't know if that's how warders behave, but I don't. They recovered their smile. And I really was impressed with your fighting. Takeshi immediately flushed. What? When? At the gauntlet, of course, Chris said. Takeshi got even redder, and Chris realized he thought he was being made fun of. I mean it. They said hurriedly. Your blade crafting is excellent. I really learned a lot. That was the best marksman's arrow I'd ever seen. And then the way you were able to keep up the sigils under pressure when I closed in? It was just luck that I... Well, and then I messed up, going too hard. It wasn't your fault, Takeshi responded. I... It had been a long day, and you are so fast. I got flustered. He stopped immediately and put his hand over his mouth in an almost comic gesture of dismay. Chris was so surprised that they fell silent. Takeshi's eyes dodged around the room. He started to speak again with a jerk as though it took an effort to get the sound out. I guess I was tired. He put his hands on the table. I'm pretty tired now, actually. I think Takeshi, Chris said, and then repeated it when Takeshi didn't seem to hear them. I don't know what's going on, but I'm not trying to trick you or attack you. They put a hand on Takeshi's, hoping to crack through the panic. Really, I just want to help. Takeshi stayed in his seat, but eyed Chris suspiciously. Why? Chris opened their mouth and realized they didn't have a reason, or at least not one they could put into words. Takeshi seemed like the kind of person they could be friends with, and he seemed to need help, and they hadn't thought any further than that. Chris tried to imagine how someone like, not Bologna, that was too much, but maybe Michiko would think about this. Or how Takeshi must see it after living in Toifei for years. You could have made it a lot harder for me in the gauntlet, and you didn't, they said finally. And I might need your help in the future. Takeshi's hand relaxed beneath Chris's on the table, but Chris's good mood had somewhat deflated. Were they going to be that cynical after a few years on Toifei? Anyway, Takeshi said, recovering a little. Nothing's going on. As I said, I was just tired. Chris took a deep breath. You were flustered. That's what you said. And, they added, remembering, you did look stressed. Takeshi seemed grimly determined not to show any expression. I fought a lot of Ikarons in cross-island tourneys. Chris went on as gently as they could. They never get stressed. Takeshi withdrew his hand from Chris's to cover his face. Could everyone tell No, no, I don't think so. It was slight, just your breathing and your timing. What is it? Are you sick? I don't know, Takeshi whispered from behind his hands. I have never... I don't have the birthright. I've never had it. Chris was silent for a moment. You were born somewhere else? Takeshi lifted his face, taking a deep breath in. I don't know... At sea, I suppose, or maybe here, but no one has ever told me anything about it. Chris looked at him with renewed respect. You mean to tell me you earned the warder position without any birthright? A half-smile lit Takeshi's face. I guess I did, he said, but the smile faded as quickly as it had come. I'm not sure how long I can last this way, though. It's hard hiding this. And I am at such a disadvantage in duels. I studied bladecraft as hard as I could, but I've never been good enough at the fighting. I don't know. It seems like you're doing pretty well, Chris said. Besides, I don't have the Yakaran birthright either. No, but you do have a birthright. Not one that helps particularly with dueling, Chris pointed out. I don't know, Takeshi said, looking down again. I think... uh, maybe... Knowing who you are gives you a kind of confidence that must be helpful, on some level. Besides, I can't relax. I'm always one duel away from being exposed. Would it be that bad? Takeshi shook his head without breaking eye contact. I couldn't represent Ikato if I wasn't born there. Maybe it was something else, Chris said. You can't know for sure. Maybe, Takeshi said heavily. I am studying birthrights to try to figure out what went wrong with mine. And maybe fix it? Takeshi shrugged. He didn't seem to be holding out much hope of that. I don't know anything about your experiments, Chris said thoughtfully. But I can help you with one thing. What's that? Let's become practice partners. I can learn much from your craft, and lots of sparring is the best thing to reduce your stress in an actual duel. You would do that? Takeshi asked, his smile fluttering to life again. It's not a favor, Chris said. I mean it. I could learn a lot from you. And I can always use more practice partners. Takeshi's smile widened, and Chris was struck by how much it brightened his face. They felt a growing warmth inside. Yes, Chris could be good at being a warder, and enjoy it, too. Chapter 6, Michiko Hands trembling, Michiko lit her candle on her third try. She had waited until she was sure the embassy was quiet. It was taboo to disturb anyone while they were communing with their ancestors, but Michiko didn't feel as if she could count on anything anymore. Lavinia or Bologna certainly wouldn't hesitate to break into what they saw as a primitive ritual, and Michiko didn't even trust Kintsuki at this point. But it had been days since she had spoken with her ancestors, the longest she had ever gone. She missed her great-aunt and uncle, who had been carrying presences in her life since she was a child, maybe even more so since they had passed. And Michiko knew they missed her, too. She was the most consistent of their descendants, and she felt guilty for leaving them alone for so long. If only there was a way to see them without opening her mind to the Golden Lord. Then Aiko and Hiroaki had lied to her, too, hadn't they? Nobody had ever told her about her heritage and they had always urged her to do whatever was necessary to make Mertika proud of her, although that had felt very different on Kakute than it did here in the face of Lavinia's scorn. With a sigh, Michiko lit a stick of knucklewood from the candle and inhaled its smoke. She needed to see them. However uncomfortable it was going to be, she couldn't put it off any longer. Her uncle Hiraki was the first voice to join her as the incantation faded, and Michiko was aware of a disloyal pang of annoyance. Perhaps because he was closer to the mortal world, Hiroaki had always been more interested in Michiko's career and achievements, more conditional in his love. On the other hand, at least it wasn't the Golden Lord yet. How are you, niece? he asked, and true to form, he immediately added, How was the gauntlet? Did you prove yourself worthy of the honor? Michiko swallowed hard. I... I tried very hard, uncle. There was an ominous pause... Does that mean you failed? You know how important that was. There was a silence, the absence of sound that expresses a sigh among the unbreathing. You know that unless you demonstrate, your excellence, they will not respect any of us. You must show them that Kakutans are as good as any Martican. Michiko did know. After her interview with Lavinia and Bologna this morning, it was even clearer. What she didn't know was why she had failed. Oh, leave her alone, Hiroki. Aiko's voice was so welcome that Michiko felt tears start in her eyes. How are you, my dear? Were you injured? Michiko shook her head, unable to vocalize an answer. You must miss home very much. I do, Michiko said with a sudden onrush of feeling. For a moment, she wanted more than anything to be back in Kakute. But then she couldn't help but wonder whether Kakute would still feel like home if she were there. Great aunt, I... I failed to defeat Chris of Rumika in the gauntlet. Aiko clucked comfortingly. There, there, it happens to all of us. Why, I remember once when I did it on purpose, Michiko whispered desperately. That is to say, I had an opportunity that might have let me win. And I let it go because... Murtika told me to defeat them, and and I'm not sure I could have anyway. They're very good, but I was angry because Murtika didn't have good reasons for blocking them. It wasn't a point of policy. It was for a warder's seat, and the way they asked me no, ordered me was beyond humiliating. Michiko realized she was babbling into a shocked silence. The otherworldly quiet was broken suddenly by peals of laughter. You defied Murtika? Excellent! A shame you had to throw a duel to do it. That is bad form indeed, my granddaughter, but worth it to deny those Murticans their triumph. Suddenly, Michika was overcome by anger. How dare he interrupt her conversation with her great-aunt and uncle, her real ancestors who had always been there for her? How dare he appropriate her anguish over her decision? You don't know what you're talking about, she said, gasping through gritted teeth. It might have been a scream if she hadn't been so aware of the quiet of the embassy around her. You think everything is clear and easy, right and wrong. It's not. At least, not anymore. You think everything is won and lost on the battlefield. Well, you lost. You lost and you lost our whole country. And now, because of you, we have to compromise. So stop telling me what to do. Michiko broke apart into rough-hewn sobs. She was so distraught, she almost lost the connection. But she grasped at the memory of her great-aunt's wrinkled hands, clutching hers long ago when she was alive, and held on to it until she was calmer could feel the presence of all three of her ancestors again. "'I'm sorry, great-aunt,' she whispered at last. "'I feel that I have failed everyone. "'But Murtika is not always right.' Hiroaki started to grumble something, but Aiko cut him off. "'Of course, dear, nobody is always right. "'But the Empress is our liege, "'and that relationship is too important to risk. "'We owe them our loyalty.' And the best way to advance within that relationship is by proving our perfect loyalty along with our excellence in battle. Her tone was gentle with forgiveness, but that hurt even more. If you could see them here, Michiko said despairingly, the senior warder is so cruel and even... She trailed off into a sigh. It felt too petty to go into all the little ways Bologna had hurt her feelings. This is how the oppressors always are. It was the Golden Lord's voice again, but even he sounded strangely chastened. They will never think of us as equals. You must do what you think is right, Aiko said, her voice cutting across the Golden Lord's just as she had overrun Hiroaki. My dear, this all must have been a shock to you, but you have been brought up well. You have skill and you have pride. You must draw on them to decide what to do. You must never give in, the Golden Lord spat out hurriedly. The knucklewood was guttering and the connection was almost gone. You must fight for your homeland. The spark at the end of the incense died and the candle flickered and extinguished as the ritual ended. Michiko was left alone in the darkness. Chapter 7. Adechike Someone had clearly explained to the Kuloi embassy cook how to make matoke, but he hadn't quite gotten the hang of it yet. Either that or maybe the ingredients available on Toifei were subtly different from what Adechike was used to at home. The tea, on the other hand, was far better, and he drank a deep draught with appreciation. Like it? Ojo asked with a knowing smile. I get it directly from Shun. That's a relationship you should be sure to cultivate. Sounds wise, Adechike agreed. He stretched luxuriantly, still waking up. It was missed day, and after the whirlwind of arrival, the gauntlet, and the trade deal, It felt good to have a lazy morning. Has the trade convoy arrived yet? Uh, Not yet, Uh, but they're not expected until later today, at the very earliest. Despite his unconcerned words, Ojo got up from the table and paced over to the window. It's a great thing, Uncle, Adechike said, trying to bring Ojo back into the sense of optimism. Adechike himself felt whenever he thought about the trade deal. With a single stroke, you have resolved one of the greatest challenges facing our country. Ojo turned from the window. We haven't solved anything, Adechikei. His face was tight. Delayed it, perhaps. What do you mean? Surely that quantity of airstone. He trailed off as he registered Ojo's expression. Our island is sinking, Adechikei. Ojo's voice was heavy, his shoulders weighed down with worry. It's sinking faster than you know. Faster than almost anyone outside the bright chamber is aware. His voice dropped still lower. They are not sure whether the trend is reversible. But, but, Adetchike sputtered until his natural optimism reasserted itself. But the trade deal, surely that quantity of airstone at that level of purity, it will make a difference. It must. If we are fortunate, it will slow our decline and perhaps even give us time to find another source, Ojo admitted but I have no idea what that might be. Adetchike shook his head in confusion. We can always get more from Rumika. Ojo looked at him sharply. I hardly think they will follow us down the path of exploitation, and it wouldn't be ethical to encourage them to. He added as if to himself. Adetchike stared. The stalwart principled Ojo Kante, needing to talk himself out of an action that would clearly be wrong. The state of their nation must be desperate indeed. It doesn't have to be exploitation, K managed finally. At least he could feel happy about bringing good news. Chris was telling me the other night. He furrowed his brow, trying to remember the details. What they sold us came from less raw airstone than you would expect. They have found a way of refining it, some better process system they've developed at the university and already put into practice. He shrugged helplessly. I didn't get the full schema, but Chris said we could conduct further deals. Ojo was frozen in his spot midway between the window and the door to the library. Processing. Yes, Adachike said. For the first time, it occurred to him to wonder how it was that Ojo didn't already know this. The university has been working on it. Made some breakthrough? He shook his head. His memories of that night were too blurry to come up with more specifics. You should talk to Chris about it directly. Yes, Ojo said, sounding vague. He turned toward the library. I think I better speak to Shikosi first, however. Uh, perhaps the shipment has already arrived. Dachike watched him go, with the sense of having made some terrible mistake, but unsure whether it was against his country or his friend. Chapter 8. Michiko When Bologna appeared at the Kakute embassy during Miss day, Michiko's first impulse was to tell her to get lost. Wasn't she standing up to Murtika now? But she had been wandering around the embassy all day, stewing in the confusion and frustration left over from her ritual the night before, and Bologna was practically incandescent. She seemed, for once, to be excited about something that didn't have to do with politics. Guess what I found? She blurted out as soon as she walked into the Kakute embassy salon. Michiko tried to give her an uninterested look, but Bologna didn't seem to register it. A new club opened up, and they do spiral dances every mist Day. I heard they have a great caller. Really? Spiral dancing was a Murtikan tradition, but it had been popular in Kakute for years, probably since the conquest, Michiko realized with a pang of guilt. For a while, it was the only thing in Michiko's life that could compete with bladecraft training for her interest, and even now she felt her lassitude melt away at the idea of it. Yes, really. Come on, get dressed. Balona's impatience and imperiousness seemed a lot less offensive now that they were aimed at doing something fun rather than gaining power for herself. She seemed younger, more vulnerable. Besides, moping around the embassy for the rest of the day suddenly seemed intolerable. Michiko suffered a minor crisis in her chambers trying to figure out what to wear. Fashions in Toife were generally less conservative than those in Kakute, and she wondered whether her standard spiral dance robe would look horribly gauche here. Then she remembered that Bologna was wearing a tunic and gladiator sandals up to mid-thigh and decided she couldn't do worse. Bologna led her to the lifts and down to the second level of Toife. They turned away from the autumn leaf, which was still the only place that Michiko felt comfortable finding on her own on the Middle Island. The streets down here were twisty and narrow compared to the broader avenues on the diplomatic level or the more cargo-friendly spaces by the ports. To her surprise, Michiko caught some syllables of a language she didn't recognize, and she wondered if this was the Zenitai neighborhood Takeshi had mentioned. Then Bologna turned into a slope-roofed building, festooned with the traditional twists of colored ribbon, and as soon as Michiko heard the accelerating beat of the spiral dance ribbon, she forgot everything else. They danced for hours, with a few breaks to sip charant and talk to some of the other dancers. The collar was inspired, and the dancers were wearing a wide enough range of clothes for Michiko to feel comfortable in hers, although Bologna was probably a little beyond the pale, and Michiko met some local Toifei people who seemed nice and urged her to come back again next Miss Day. All in all, Michiko was feeling happier when they left the dance hall, which was probably why she made the mistake of agreeing to accompany Bologna to the autumn leaf for dinner. They hadn't even gotten their noodle bowls before Michiko remembered why she usually hated Bologna. So good to cut loose like that after a long week, Bologna was saying, sipping from her cup of iced chrysanthemum tea. Of course, it was much worse for you, with your failure at the gauntlet. Michiko put her cup down and stared at Bologna, wondering how she could become so insufferable so quickly. And she carved a sigil enabling niceness that had just worn off. But Bologna didn't notice. Her eyes were darting around the public area of the tea house with eager anxiety, cataloging those present and absent searching for opportunities. Through her annoyance, Michiko wondered if maybe Bologna had needed the break much, much more than she had. Bologna raised her hand in a quick little wave, and Michiko glanced over her shoulder to see whom she was greeting. Ojo was sitting alone at a table in the back, brooding over a cup of tea. He did not look like he was having a good miss day. He also did not look like he'd noticed Bologna's wave. When Michiko turned back to their table, Bologna seemed to have come to the same conclusion. She was frowning slightly, and Michiko wondered if she was going to go with pitying. Poor Ojo, so distracted since Penelope left with his unborn child. Or scornful. Those Kuloi think they're so much better than everyone else. She didn't expect her to attack. You never did manage to drive a wedge between the Kuloi and the Rumikins, did you? Michiko was so surprised she didn't manage an answer, and then the waiter was there with their noodles, and she closed her mouth on whatever she had been about to say. Bologna didn't seem to care if they were overheard. You were supposed to find ways to warn Chris about the Kuloi agenda, and you didn't. Now Chris is a warder also, thanks to you, and the Rumikins and the Kuloi... Bologna paused to fix a smug expression on her face. You don't even know what the Rumikins and the Kuloi are up to, do you? It wasn't just the words. Bologna's tone was snide and demeaning, and she didn't even seem to expect an answer from Michiko, as if her response would have no meaning at all. Face burning, Michiko stabbed at her bowl of noodles. Bologna continued, looking around the room while she spoke as if Michiko wasn't even there, and yet she was clearly only talking to make the Kakutan feel bad. The Rumikins are selling airstone to Kulo, for less than market price, I might add. How short-sighted. But they must know that this will be addressed in the council. Michiko was baffled. Why would it be addressed? Surely any nation can trade as it wishes with any other. Bologna looked furious at first, then she burst out in a forced laugh. Of course, I shouldn't have expected you to have as fine a sense of the clockwork of power. She leaned forward. The Rumikins are providing critical aid to the Kulo. Airstone is practically a military resource, but what would a Kakutan know of such things? You haven't won a war or even a diplomatic challenge in centuries. Michiko could not help but remember the Golden Lord's words, her grandfather's words. Murtika would never value her. For all of Bologna's friendliness, she had never thought of Michiko as her equal. Chapter 9. Ojo Ojo was holding a teacup, but it was filled with a rock. A particularly powerful arak that Shun had handpicked for him after seeing his face, which was why Ojo was nursing it so carefully. Tonight should be triumphant, and he should have nothing to stay sober for once he received confirmation that the trade convoy had arrived safely. But he could not feel confident enough to get himself sloshed. He desperately wanted to, though, and more every time he replayed the conversation with Shikozi in his head. Ojo had thought that the information about Rumika's new processing methods might calm heads among Kuloi's ruling elite, but judging from Chikosi's reaction, he was entirely wrong. Are you telling me they can make raw airstone more productive? Chikosi had asked incredulously. And they haven't shared this technology. They are offering us access to the product for trade, Ojo told him. This could be exactly what we need. This could save us. If we can afford it, Chikosi responded. They don't know how desperate our situation is, Ojo reminded him. Perhaps a discreet word to the Rumican warder, with whom I've built a strong working relationship. Absolutely not. Chikose had looked as angry as Ojo had ever seen him. We must not let anyone know how weak we are right now. Ojo, I hope you can see that. Chikose frowned into the reflecting pool. You better not have hinted it to your new Rumikan friend. No, uh, of course not, Ojo had assured him. And he had believed it to be true at the time, but now he was thinking back through all his conversations with Chris, wondering if his comments about what a great thing it was that they were doing had suggested desperation. And the convoys still hadn't arrived. Ojo didn't want to borrow trouble, but he couldn't help worrying. He did the calculations in his head. Perhaps one of the ships had been lost in a Monarch attack. Where would that leave them? Or maybe it was a storm that had driven them off course, but surely one or two ships would have gotten through. He had promised himself that he would give it three hours before returning to the reflecting pool to check in again. Still two hours to go. Ojo took another sip of his drink. He wished he had someone to talk to. His eyes drifted around the room, and he noticed for the first time that Bologna and Michiko were sitting at a table not far from him. Strike that, he wished specifically that he had Penelope to talk to. She was so clear-headed and strategic, she would tell him how silly he was to be worried about useless things and convince him to hope again. Chapter 10. A Sky. The Anguahan rocks were not technically under Kuloi control, but they were close enough to the embargoed area around the island that most ships from other nations avoided them. But it was the fastest route back to Sukisen from the Tanagawa Maru's trading voyage to Kakute. Sukisen's famous neutrality theoretically allowed them passage, and Captain Komatsu ordered the colors hung to avoid any mistakes. Even so, she proceeded with caution. The uninhabited scatter of small islands was a classic site for ambush. An official Kuloi patrol was the least of her worries. There could be a Hiroki pirates lurking among the crags, and even without hostile ships, the currents were treacherous. Many a ship had. Komatsu's thought was cut off mid sentence as the Tanagawa Maru came around a promontory into the heart of the rock cluster. There indeed were many ships, or rather, parts of many ships. For a moment, the creaking of the tackle was the only sound, and the crew froze in shock at the sight before them. Splintered wood and twists of rope were scattered across the strait, all of it drifting lower into the mists as they watched. So much debris suggested multiple ships, a convoy, maybe a fleet. Komatsu counted at least five large pieces of hull, with the tip of another just protruding from the mists as it sank. Whatever had happened here had happened recently. Just before Komatsu shouted the order to come hard about, she caught a glimpse of color streaked across a thick spar. Torn and already damp with mist, the Rumikan Chimera flag fluttered desolately from the wreckage. You're listening to Born to the Blade, Episode 5, by Malka Older, starring XC Sands. Produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Realm, listen away.
1: Hi, I'm Madigan from Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, the podcast that explores the world through a personal, intersectional feminist perspective. I bring you two episodes a week. Every Monday, I cover something from a wide variety of topics, covering everything from feminist faves throughout history like Audre Lorde, listener coming out stories, and other hot button topics like toxic masculinity and the Me Too movement as well as plenty feminist history, the good and the controversial. And then every Friday, I bring you a mini What's in the News episode to keep you up to date with everything that's going on today in the world. And with over 580 episodes available to you right now, there's plenty of good stuff to listen to. You can listen to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rage on. Bye.
2: Born to the Blade is created by Michael R. Underwood and written by Michael R. Underwood, Marie Brennan, Cassandra Kaw, and Malka Older. It is executive produced by Julian Yap and Molly Barton. Audio production, sound design, editing, and theme music by Amanda Rose Smith.